tonight on Arena. Joe Darling on his new production of Brian Friel's Faith Healer at the Abbey Theatre. And we review the new translation of Elena Ferrante's novel, The Lost Daughter. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. The long-delayed Abbey Theatre production of Brian Friel's Faith Healer opens this evening. It stars Aidan Gillen as the Faith Healer of the title, Frank Hardy, who travels through the remote towns and villages of Scotland and Wales offering hope and cures to the most desperate of people he meets. The story is told in monologues from Frank himself, his wife Gracie, played by Neve Cusack, and manager Teddy, played by Nigel Lindsay. Through... Freel's genius storytelling we encounter the story of their lives together though versions may differ in the telling. The story of the play Faith Healer is as fascinating as the play itself and the director of this Abbey production Joe Darling is the same director who 40 years ago gave it its first production on an Irish stage. I met Joe Darling earlier, sat down with him in the Peacock Theatre foyer to discuss Faith Healer's past and present. Joe, your relationship with the plays of Brian Friel, indeed with Brian Friel, goes back quite a long way. You said that I think Brian Friel changed your life. You probably wouldn't be sitting in front of me today if it wasn't for Brian Friel. I, I think that's probably very true. Um, it, it did in the way, that, in the sense that I saw Philadelphia Here I Come in 1964 in the Gaiety, the first production. And while I was starstruck already and, and, and theatre-bound, but I had no real concept because I was 16 at the time. So I had no real concept at all of what life in the theatre meant. But I kind of knew when I saw the play that that's where I had to be. I had to be doing that. And um, from then on, it became a serious intent. And t- two years later, I joined the Abbey. And in fact, as a very young director, uh, you were brought in, was Tomás McCann, I think, in this very building, in the amphitheatre, who brought you in to talk about directing Living Quarters. Uh, how tongue-tied were you at that particular meeting? Freel was there as well. I was... I mean, to meet your hero and to meet somebody uh, who just had, had had that impact when I was younger. Um, yes, Tomás McCann invited... It was actually... The first meeting was actually... Uh, in the old Royal Dublin Hotel that was on O'Connell Street. And we sat with a drink in front of us. I was, I, I was director of the Peacock at the time, um, all of 24, 25. And um, I, I couldn't barely say a word. Um, Friel was also quite a shy man, in fact. And he wasn't saying much either. So it was down to Tomás McConaughey who... Uh, was an extraordinary leader and a jovial presence and a terrific... Um, he was just had, had exactly the right kind of approach and attitude to get these two very shy people looking at each other to actually talk to each other. But I came away from that meeting and my, I, I remember going down O'Connell Street sort of with my heart heavy thinking, well, you completely blew that one. You haven't a chance that this man is ever going to ask you to direct one of his plays when you can't even put two sentences together. Um, so I was stunned the next day when McConaughey told me that Brian wanted me to direct his play. And that was the beginning of a long and very, very happy working relationship and a happy personal relationship with a great man, a great writer and a real um, a great Irishman. Let's roll forward a bit then and bring us to this play, to, to Faith Healer. 
the early 1970s. First production of this play in America, James Mason in the part of Frank Hardy, you know, huge excitement. Mm. And, and, and Philadelphia and Here I Come and other plays had been successes for Freel at this point as well. But that first production of Faith Healer just didn't work. Did you see it or did you hear about it? I heard about it. Uh, obviously, I'd read the play before. We were rehearsing Aristocrats, Brian's other play, here at the Abbey, the first production of that, when Brian went off to um, oversee the, the, the New York, the Broadway production of his new play, Faith Healer. And I'd read the play. Um, it, it was a, a very difficult play for a Broadway audience unfamiliar with Irish storytelling, with the, 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 the monologue form. Um, and Brian always said that James Mason actually was quite wonderful. He was, he was terrific. The problem was twofold, I think. One, he, his wife, Clarissa Kay, was playing Gracie. And uh, that was a problem because, by all accounts, and again, I didn't see it, uh, by all accounts, it was not a performance that really, it, it didn't um, sort of work. Um, and the actor who was playing Teddy left after they had an out-of-town tryout in Boston and he left a man called Ed Flanders and they had to bring in Donald Donnelly. So the, the, the production had some difficulties and then it was in too big a theatre and in those days uh, the actors weren't mic'd on the stage at all. That was regarded as you know a terrible thing to do and James Mason was in his 70s. So I think there was a whole combination of things that the play wasn't seen in its proper uh, form. But I, I was artistic director of the Abbey by this time, so I said to Brian, we'll do it at the Abbey. And he, he was very reluctant because he, he didn't want to go through the same... He knew he had a great play on his hands, but he didn't want to go through the same experience in Dublin that he had just been through in New York. So we talked about it, but he was saying, I don't think so, I, I really don't think so, we'll, we'll leave it. We leave it sit for a few years and see what happens. And then about a week later, I, I, again, we'd opened Aristocrats and he was very happy with the production. And he, about a week later, he called me and he said, if you can persuade Donald McCann to play Frank Hardy, um, we'll do the play. And Donald, though he was much younger than the role demanded, um, sort of at that point made it his own. Uh, once we'd embraced that idea of doing it and we had Donal and we had Kate Flynn who was a wonderful actor here at the time and John Kavanagh who's a, still a, a wonderful wonderful a, a actor um, we had that cast and um, it just from then on and, and I, as we started to work on it I remember distinctly thinking why would people not find this fascinating and, and uh, yes the play the play was a huge success here and went on to have a a subsequent life that now results in us doing it again. <laughs> uh, when we think of that play, Faith Hill, four monologues, two of them from Frank Hardy, all intertwining different versions of a story of a particular night. Um, at, at one level, it sounds so simple, and the monologue became almost ubiquitous, you could argue, in Irish theatre, certainly. It was in the mid-70s, mid to late 70s, when the first production happened here in Ireland. Yeah, so, you know, you're, you're talking about into the 80s and 90s when monologues from young playwrights really became the, the way it was for, for quite a while. Would you put a lot of that down to what was seen in Faith Healer? Oh, there is no question in my mind that Faith Healer in particular, and Friel in general, um, was a trailblazer for Irish theatre. Um, 
What was fascinating about Brian, and if you look at the canon of his plays, now that we have the complete canon, he he was always exploring different styles, different ways of telling stories. He never, ever sort of settled into a, this is a freel style. I mean, if you go from Philadelphia here, I come with the two characters, the same character played by two different actors. You go through to Lovers, where you know what's, what is going to happen, and yet you still um, watch the play because of the, the way he tells the story. And then you have Faith Healer, a play of monologues. And then, I mean, two great masterpieces of Irish theatre, uh, translations, first done in Derry in 1980 in the brilliant production by Arthur Brian that changed the way many people outside this country as well as in this country thought about the, what had led to the troubles and what had led to where we were at that particular time. And then came uh, another masterpiece, Dancing at Lunasa. And in that he evoked, um, I mean, through the, the dance, through physical movement, through the way in which also he told that story, he evoked a whole um, era that, uh, uh, that, that was coming, I mean, with things like Riverdance and, and other expressions of Irish culture through movement. And Freel was there, with, ahead of them all. A major, major figure in international theatre, a major playwright, you know, and, and, and it's great that the Abbey has done so many of his plays and great that they're now doing this one, which is one of his masterpieces. And it, again, I'm winding forward a bit here to the time when you were uh, artistic director in the Tyrone Gussie Theatre in Minneapolis, a theatre with which Freel himself had a huge uh, relationship. And in fact, if I say that you wouldn't be a director in theatre if it weren't for Brian Freel, we could argue that Brian Freel may not have been a playwright if it weren't for the Tyrone Guthrie Theatre. Well, T- Tyrone Guthrie was a hero for Brian. I mean, Brian... Brian had a great relationship with them. And Tyrone Guthrie had seen some of Brian's stories in The New Yorker magazine and others and had complimented him on it and complimented him on, um, in, in letters and writing uh, on, on, on um, an early play that he'd written. Um, and when Brian saw in the newspaper that Tyrone Guthrie was going to open a theatre in Minneapolis, Minnesota, he wrote to, to, uh, to, to Tyrone Guthrie and said, could I come and observe and be an observer at your new theatre? And Guthrie wrote back immediately saying yes. And Brian and, and his wife Anne and their two children at that time um, took off for uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. He had been a school teacher and now this was his foray into becoming a full-time writer. And he wrote extensively about the, the impact that it had watching Guthrie at work. Guthrie was probably at the time the most innovative theatre director in the world, certainly in the English-speaking world. And so Friel had the opportunity to um, sit and watch and, and uh, see how he shaped plays, shaped productions, and it had a massive impact. And in fact, he started to write Philadelphia Here I Come while he was there in Minnesota. And why, why, my first play that I directed, well, actually the second play, but the fir- in the first season, first play that I directed there was Philadelphia, Here I Come, and Donald Donnelly, who had played Gar in the original, came back and played the father. So the circle was being complete. And Friel wrote to me and he said, I wrote this play having left Minnesota on a Guthrie high, 
And when he heard that I was going to run the Guthrie Theatre, um, he wrote me a really wonderful letter kind of saying, um, you know how much this, this theatre means to me and that you're going there feels so right for, for them and for you. And, you know, it was, it, it, I know it meant a lot to him. All sorts of circles completed, of course. Now, you, there were many free plays that you produced uh, while you were there in, in Minneapolis. Then there was the moment when Joe Darling, former actor, like quite a while back in his 20s, decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take on Frank Hardy now. I'm going to play the part of Frank Hardy in a production in Minneapolis. What possessed you to decide to well, do that? It, it wasn't quite as simple as that. Um, it was Friel's uh, 80th birthday and I wanted to celebrate it in some way. And I thought this play is a perfect one because... It's, it's so much, it synthesizes so much of what Brian's work is about. Um, and I thought, this is the one to do. But I, I thought, if I, whatever actor I cast, I'm going to hear Donald McCann's voice because I had never done it with anyone else except Donald at that point. And I thought, I'll drive that actor nuts. I mean, I'll keep wanting particular intonations. And that's the worst thing a director can do. I mean, you just can't be... I mean, I've had that experience myself as an actor. A director would say, no, 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 this is the way you do it and give you the line reading. Not acceptable at all. So I woke up one morning and I thought, well, maybe you should do it yourself. Just as a vague thought. I said it to my wife, Siobhan, and she didn't say, "Uh, what are you smoking? I'd like some, please. Um, so I went into the theatre and I mentioned it, unfortunately, to the head of communications, who immediately ran out and got the poster done. I mean, there was an absolute avalanche of, you're doing this now and we're going to sort of make it a centrepiece of the season. So then I was kind of, I was in it. Probably the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life. But what was interesting about that was... I thought I would be hearing Donald's, because Donald was remarkable. I thought I'd be hearing his voice. Um, I didn't. I heard Friel's voice. I heard, by, by focusing as an actor on the text, I could see what makes it such an attractive part for great actors like Donald, like Aidan Gillen. Um, the, this... This play speaks to you in, in a very particular way as an actor. Of course, Aidan Gillen is playing Frank Hardy in, in, in the current production, but just sticking with your own experience, if I can, for a moment, Friel, uh, at a certain point in his life, was quite dismissive of the director, the theatre director, and I know your experience of him as a director would be if an actor needed a note, Friel knew how to give the director the note to pass it on to the actor, not directly to the actor. Now, when it came to you, the actor... <laughs> Were you, could you take on board, perhaps, some of Freel's notes that had come to you as a director, if you know what I mean? Could you hear Freel directing you almost silently, apart from on the text on the page now? Yes, yes. I could hear Brian's emphasis on particular words and particular phrases in the, in the play. The play is filled with... I mean, it's a remarkable play on, on lots of different levels. One on the sheer storytelling level. You have to tell the story, and the story is told in fractured ways, you know, because all of the different, uh, Frank Hardy and Grace, uh, his wife, we believe, and his manager all tell the same stories, but tell it from a different perspective. And of course, that's true of life. I mean, we all might, you and I might be at the same event, and you'd describe it entirely differently to me. So there's an element of that in the storytelling that keeps people waiting for what the next guy's going to say. But there's also um, a level of 
uh, poetic vision in this play. Friel structured language so beautifully, and he uses language in a really powerful, beautiful, memorable way. And some of the images in the play, um, I mean, he, he, you know, he, he, he used, uh, a, a, as I say, a kind of poetry, though the play is not written in poetry, but it, it has a poetic ring to it, a musical ring to it. So you have to get that right. Um, and that's where, uh, listening to his voice, even though he was at that time back in, uh, in Greencastle, um, but listening to that voice was what helped me through. Coming to the play now, because you, you know you had that first Irish production with Donald McCann, other productions with Donald McCann, as you say, and now this new production with Neve Cusack, and Nigel Lindsay, and Aidan Gillen. Uh, does the play is it saying something new to you in 2021 that it, that it wasn't saying back in 1978 nine? Uh, yes, I mean, in in some ways, and in other ways, the sort of permanence of, of the play and the canon, the the, the it, you can't sort of have it up to 2021 in terms of, you know, they'd all have cell phones and they, they would never end up where they did. So you have to sort of respect the culture in which it's, it's written and the kind of world, the world of the 1950s where the fit-ups were a normal expectation of, of, of country towns all around the country and indeed all around Britain as well. But in, in the theme of the play remains the same. I mean, the theme of the play, um, while ostensibly about a faith healer and his wife and his manager is also about the art of creation a creative artist somebody who sits with a blank page or with a a blank canvas and and has to create from nothing a um, a work of art and frank hardy in the play always called his faith healing a performance he talked about it as a performance and when I got, he says, I get so tense before a performance, that's when he would recite the names of all the places. So that, that sort of central thing of how is art created? How does the, what is an artist? Is it a craft? Is it a, a, a vocation? What is it that, that motivates certain people um, to want to, to, to do that? That, I think, remains a constant. But it's interesting... I find it interesting at this stage of my life, a much older stage than when I did it first, how much that resonates now with me in a way that, that perhaps it didn't uh, in, in, in the early times because I thought, well, of course, he just sits down and writes it. And then it's a brilliant play and then there we are. But the, the kind of difficulty of creation is important. I think the other thing too, and after what we've been through for the last year, the isolation of the play, the sense that even though they were all together, they lived in completely separate worlds. And that's a, a, identified by the fact that there's always only one person on stage at the time. So though, th- that, I think, has sort of, as we've gone through it, has, has struck us, the, the, the actors and myself, more this time than certainly I remember back in, uh, in the late 70s or in the last time I had done the play with Donald was in... 1990 in uh, the Long Wharf Theatre in, in Connecticut. How different is the Dublin Theatre of now, 2021, from the Dublin Theatre of 1979, the Dublin Theatre that you left when you went to Minneapolis later in the, towards the end of the century, I guess, and, and then the Dublin Theatre that you came back to? How different a scene is it now? Are, are there fundamentals that are better, fundamentals that you miss that are worse, maybe? 
it's very hard for me, having been away so long, um, to sort of opine about the state of Irish theatre, and I think that would be a, something of, a, of an impertinence because the world has changed quite dramatically. Um, I can only talk from what I see, um, and, and I, I'm, I'm hugely impressed with the young people who are coming out of drama schools like the Lear and the Gaiety School of Acting. I'm, I'm hugely impressed at the commitment that perhaps in a previous generation wasn't wasn't there I, i'm not denigrating anybody but you know when i came into the into the theater first in the late 1960s um there hadn't there hadn't been much by way of training and there hadn't there wasn't by much by way of sort of internal discipline both both of the the artists themselves or of the company it it was much looser and rehearsals weren't as um austere and definite when I look at what's happening here in this theatre, in the Abbey Theatre, um, I see a hugely professional organisation in a way that when I was running it back in the late 70s, early 80s, we, we were striving, financially striving, to actually make it uh, a professional organisation, a fully professional organisation. And now I see that in every aspect of this theatre. It has that, and that, that has um given the work a kind of uh, a, a new international perspective. But you were involved in the, uh, in the interview process for the current artistic directorial team here in the Abbey. So in, in your mind, I know there were others involved here as well, and it wasn't just your decision, but there must have been something that, uh, you, were, that you saw in the team and that you wanted to see in the years forward, particularly for the National Theatre. I, I, I was simply an advisor to... Um, the committee that had been set up. So my role was was uh, not central to the, to the decision making. I have to say that I think that committee made a, a, a brilliant choice. I think Katrina McLaughlin and Mark O'Brien are a, are a superb team. Both um, have, have great reputations. Both of them have successes uh, under their belt outside of this organisation and Katrina within it. Um, so I, I think that that committee made a, a, a really wise and, and considered and th- well thought through decision to make the co-directors those two um, really strong leaders. So I'm, I'm thrilled with, with, the, um, with that decision. One other thing then that I do have to ask you, you're back at directing. I don't know if you're going to go back acting now in Ireland as well. Would there be any tickle in your bone around the idea of an artistic directorship but if one were to come up? at a venue in the city or in the country? Sean, I'm 73. Get real. <laughs> You're very young, 73. Um, quite rightly, the world has changed in that respect. And we old white guys, we have had our chance. We took our chances when we got them. And now it's up to uh, the next generation and the generation after that. And they will come along and there will be people like Katrina, like Mark, like... Um, so many others of those whom I greatly admire, and they will take the leadership in in theatre and bring it uh, bring it forward in a way that hopefully, when I look back on what we did here when I was artistic director, we were able to do. We were able to um, move the theatre forward to a certain degree. Each leader does that in their own particular way. I've no desire. I've been artistic director of I was you know Irish Theatre Company, the Peacock, the Abbey. Um, the Gaiety uh, and, and the uh, the largest regional theatre in the United States. I think that's enough for one lifetime. 
Joe, lovely to talk to you and thanks for taking the time out because I know you're in the middle of a very busy period, previews and on the go and notes to be given. So thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Lovely to speak with Joe Darling earlier there and Joe, the director, of course, of the current production of Faith Healer running at the Abbey Theatre, opening tonight, in fact, opening roundabout now with Aidan Gillen, Neve Cusack and Nigel Lindsay in the cast. It runs right through until January the 2nd, following all of the guidelines, of course, regarding COVID. And you can find out full details of how to book on abbeytheatre.ie. Steps of Freedom, a spectacular performance-based documentary, follows the evolution of Irish dance from humble origins to present-day global phenomenon, which sees weekly Irish dance classes held in more than 60 countries around the globe, millions attending theatre shows and more watching programmes on TV. This new documentary explores how the cadences and styles of Irish dance were affected by a range of historical influences, both Irish and international, and it references an eclectic lineup of unexpected and expected characters, including Jean Butler, Michael Flatley, Beyonce, Missy Elliott, Jean Kelly, James Cagney, Shirley Temple and Queen Elizabeth. Delighted to be joined by Ruan McGann this evening. It really is a fascinating story that you're telling uh, in, in the documentary. Where did the the idea for the documentary start with you, Ruan? Hi, Sean. Um, thanks so much for having me on. Um, this was kind of a, a labour of love. It's, it's, uh, we've been at it for about seven years um, and uh, it took that long, I suppose, to do all the reading and the understanding of it. But it was it. it th- this question struck me. Oh, uh, yeah, it must be the other seven years ago. About mm. how, like, what was it about Riverdance, and what was it about Flatley? What was it about the shows that came after that? That that struck such a huge chord. I mean, obviously, they're they're the dancing is amazing, the music's amazing. They're they're brilliant in their own right, but. I just couldn't help thinking, could there be something else mm. maybe un- within them, something in, in in how the Irish dance uh, that might be connecting with people? Yeah, and, um, and obviously that river dance moment in 1994, that that interval act in the in the Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, it it was a huge moment. I think practically everybody will tell you where they were, where they saw that moment, and when everybody rose to their feet in what was. Uh, then the point depot wasn't it? Uh, just the excitement that you could feel. Uh, how big? How important a cultural moment was that? Well, it it, it probably was uh, a coming of age moment, wasn't it, for mm. Ireland? Um, it, it was the moment when we expressed ourselves. Uh, we were doing it in so many other ways at that time in in business and and arts and culture and writing. But but the, this was a very vivid expression of of Irish confidence. We we had shaken off the old Ireland, as it were. And we're and we're turning a corner into into a into a new age, um, and if you even look at how Irish dance has developed since then, you know it's kind of extraordinary what people are doing now with the medium, and it, it's 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 it keeps like every month something new happens with it. Um, it's what's interesting, Sean, is if you look at how we dance at any particular moment, it tells you an awful lot of about how the culture is at that time. That's not just particularly to Ireland; mm. that's that's a, a phenomenon of of humans all over the world. Is the way they dance is influenced yeah. by their social, economic, and cultural circumstances. Yeah, in fact, the, the um, documentary opens with a quote from Confucius, who was saying such a thing back in the day. Uh, and what's interesting here, obviously, the, 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 you know what we get to throughout the two episodes of the of the documentary really is an explanation of where River Dance came out of. And you might think, well, yeah, when did it start? The seventies, the sixties, the fifties? No, you bring us back centuries, really, to the origins of Irish dance. 
But if you, if you, there's an amazing fellow who opens up uh, that first episode called Simon O'Dwyer, and and he's he's made replicas of uh, the Wicklow pipes, which are in the National mm. Museum of Ireland, and they date to 2200 BC, and he can play what's fairly much a jig on those pipes, yeah. which suggests that maybe people were dancing jigs back then. Um, and uh, I know absolutely, I, I remember at the time of, of Riverdance that there was a lot of criticism about it having, um, I don't know, like appropriated the culture yeah. or turned it into some sort of commodified it. Um, but when I started looking at all this, you, you realize, no, in fact, it's got, it, it has very, very deep, long lineage. I mean, even Flatley himself, who, who seems like, you know, the classic Ameri- Irish-American coming in, his teacher and his teacher and his teacher and his teacher, I traced them all back yeah. uh, for 250 years, going back to a, uh, a dance master in North Kerry called O'Kernine, who's the earliest dancing master that we know exactly where he was and what he was doing and who he was teaching, what steps he had. And he was active in 1775 yeah. in around the Listowel area. And Michael Flatley and oddly Jean Butler as well, because they have a similar lineage, even though one's in Chicago, one's in New York, go right back to O'Kernine. I know it's a, it is extraordinary how you I, I, and and we trace that and we see the origins uh, where these guys these dance master, masters started out. But I want to listen to a clip if I can at this point, uh, Ruam, uh, because it's it, the author Helen Brennan is speaking here along with the dancer Jean Butler, and they're talking about you know the first documented evidence of the style of Irish dance, how passionate it was, and certainly the arms were not paste it to the sides uh, it, it, was a, it was a much freer form than we maybe uh, might associate with Irish dance There was a perception of something different about the Irish more interesting, more vibrant, more charming, you know they dance passionately We frog blooded English dance as if the practice were not congenial to us, but here they moved as if dancing had been the business of their lives the male dancer with his arm above his head, waving, and the woman dancing with her hands akimbo. There wouldn't have been prescriptions as to how you held your arms. You weren't dancing to a rigid pattern of behaviour prescribed by church, state, or anybody else. People were free to be themselves. We dance with a lot more abandon we're probably less self-conscious. I think it was more like, you know, the Garden of Eden before the apple and the serpent. What an interesting comparison made there by dancer Jean Butler at the end of that clip from Steps of Freedom, two-part documentary, which will be showing on RT television um, uh, starting on the 16th of December. In fact, uh, Rowan McGann, writer and director of the of the documentary series, is with me this evening. We we go on from that po- those points that are made there to, to really looking at how central dance was to the social life, certainly pre-famine, to, to social life in, in Ireland in terms of uh, how people just gathered in houses and, and danced on doors because there were so many people in the house, there was no space to dance anywhere else. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I think John Cullinan, an amazing figure who, who features in the documentary, says that the Irish um, developed what is one of the fastest percussive dances in the world, uh, as in our, our our feet move, make more batters on the, on the ground. And... Um, and, and, and part of this is because we ended up learning how to dance or having to learn in very confined spaces because there were so many people, maybe our cottages were so small. We, 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 
we we used to take the door off the hitches famously, but also go on a, on a table or on a barrel top. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the capacity to be able to dance in one spot and do as, the most extraordinary things in that spot became the, the, the driving feature of Irish dance. And, and that very well may be one of the reasons that people all over the world find it so extraordinary yeah. to look at. Um, and as also this competitive thing, Sean. So, so you'll dance, Sean, on top of the table, and then I'll get up on the table, and I'll go and try and outdance you. And that seems to be part of the Irish dancing yeah. scene since the 1600s. And you and you carry that right forward from the 1600s through to you know uh, the Irish diaspora and, and maybe early 20th century, late 19th century America, where you have African dancers and Irish dancers kind of squaring up to each other, almost like a boxing match, but no punches thrown. I'll oh, just have a go at that step if you think you're if you think you're so hot. And um, but however. How did it all, or where did it all go wrong? Has to be the question. And I guess what 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 you start looking at, in fact, is with the establishment of the Irish state, the kind of the strictures uh, that started, and I suppose censorship, etc., coming in. How how dance became much more uh, strict and and hemmed in than it had been in previous centuries as we got into the twentieth century. Is it is it is it maybe also Sean about about cultural nationalism and, and 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 nationalism in general that all you know you see it you see it all the nations they they, they needed to, to create an idea to fight for so nationalists you know tried to define what the culture was and in Ireland that that was a lot of that was done by the Gaelic League and the GA and 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 they did the I suppose the country some service in, in many ways but they also did irreparable damage to dance by uh, uh, codifying, uh, by, by deciding that certain dances were pure dances and yeah. everything else was, was impure and therefore couldn't be danced. And this, this, this became rather extreme to, to the point that by the, in 1930, there was the Dance Halls Act, which, which banned the traditional crossroads dances, which is funny. We all think of the yeah. devil Arrow's speech and the crossroads, but actually they were banned um, because they were there, there might be a raffle there. Somebody might be collecting some money, and that that couldn't be, you know, had at all. No, <laughs> couldn't have that at all. So, so you had to dance from that point on in 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 a in a in a in a in a in a, in a proper dance hall. Yeah, um, the other, the, and, I suppose what's important there, Ron, because you, you you touched on it, is it, initially there was this idea: let's not just have it as a wild loose form. We want to prove that our culture has got value and has got codes, just like any other culture. So there was it was a, a, possibly a good starting point, but. Things yeah. did go very wrong, and, and we get a great sense of that early on in the second part of the documentary. Here's a clip featuring um, Helen Brennan again, uh, Siobhan Manson, a, a dancer, Dr. Neve Gallagher, and Professor Kevin Whelan, Dr. Catherine Foley. Now, be careful if you're going to dance tonight. You could get yourself into big trouble. Listen to this. Dance was seen as an occasion of sin, and the agents of the wicked one would come along and mingle amongst the dancers. Dancing halls have brought many a good innocent girl into sin, shame and scandal and set her unwary feet on the road that leads to perdition. The next thing you know is that the dances the clergy favoured most were the safe Cayley dances and the pure competition style of on commission. Cayleys were very much controlled by the local priest. The men on one side of the room, the women on the other side of the room and everybody would be watching. It was George Bernard Shaw, at least it's accredited to him, who said that dancing was a vertical uh, expression of a horizontal desire. Now, in Ireland, there was going to be none of that. You didn't hold somebody closely. It was 
hand across the body. You know, the hand would separate you. The hand would always separate you. You could swing like this, or you could swing like that, holding the hand, but you didn't get too close. As they used to say, I think in, in Irish America, you know, when, when kids were dancing in high schools, leave room for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yes, indeed. A clip there from Steps of Freedom and advice on leaving room for the Holy Spirit when you're dancing with somebody. Uh, Rua McGann, uh, writer and director of the two-part documentary Steps of Freedom with me this evening. It moves beautifully on from there to, to, to look at how Irish America, James Cagney, Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly saying that dancing in the rain is really only an Irish clog dance. That's a phenomenal a, a kind of a statement from him. Yeah, isn't it? And and um, I mean, this, the, the, how it developed in America is, is a whole story. There could be a whole other documentary uh, in that. I mean, you, you look at Appalachian, some amazing um, uh, Pete Seeger footage from of, of Appalachian dancers, and they're literally dancing Irish step in, uh, up in the you know in in, in the Blue Stack Mountains. Um, so you 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 have sort of these this tradition uh, of of the sort of people on the streets. I suppose a poor mm-hmm. Irish diaspora, working class. Again, they're out on the streets and instead of fighting, they dance off against each other. And that translates over time into mm. a really amazing capacity for, for tap dance, which is also Irish dance. But then they're also surfing in a, in a tradition of George Cohan, who was very, 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 very famous in the late 1800s and 1900s, who had blazed a trail before people like Cagney and Kelly. Yeah. Um, and but, we're led, but, but, we're led yeah. through the documentary in many ways by Morgan Bullock, who became, you know, an internet sensation because of her Irish dancing yeah, and Beyonce, yeah. wasn't it? To the music of Beyonce, she was dancing. Yeah, yeah, and, and to many, many more. I mean, Morgan is really, really something else, and and she, but but she, she, she there's many, there's many people like her. Like Irish yeah. dance is no longer, of it's, it no longer belongs to Ireland. It's, it's it's it belongs to the world. So it's people from all. I mean, one of the most moving sections for me is the very, very last couple of minutes where we show footage of uh, of Irish dance schools in Japan, in Moscow, in South America, all over America, in Europe, you know, in Africa, where and and you see you see that it, you know Irish dance has left the coop. It's gone, um, mm. and uh, an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary thing that's happened—a m- massive phenomenon. Yeah, but but really, what what I think without not giving the ending away, I suppose. But what you're saying is that if rather than river dance being and and what has happened to Irish dance in recent times, rather than that being a kind of a some kind of losing of tradition, it's actually redefine a re refinding the the tradition that was there all along pre-famine, essentially. Yeah, yeah, I I I, I don't want. To- become the champion of that but it was mm. it was definitely it was definitely a catalyst and at the time it was recognized as such, as such but perhaps defined seen as a, as a negative one mm. but now you come back you know 10 20 years on it's really extraordinary what the impact of river dance has been in terms of so many boats have risen i mean even even shannos dancing which of course one of the things i found very interesting which i didn't know before shannos we always think of the dance of connemara it's actually just the old style dance yes. which was around all over the country and all the different regions had different styles um and you now see that that places like leitrim um, um with with someone like edwina guckian is is driving forward the old style dancing and it's become yeah. hugely popular yeah and um, let's let's listen because there's there's some great dancing performances in there we shouldn't forget that and i want to listen to one of those now this is stephanie Keane. this is i think this is the very start of the second episode of the of the documentary uh, cormac begley uh, the two of them on a pier in kerry it looks brilliant but you also get a real sense of the sound of the dancing the dancer drives the tune. If the dancer doesn't come down on that beat, there's no driving. 
I would tend to learn the tune and embody the tune so that I have the tune inside of me and then I let the head go and let the, the feet take over. There is a huge element of listening involved where I tune in to the musician and the musician tunes into my steps. So we meet somewhere in the present moment listening to each other. And that's Stephanie Keane there and Cormac Begley in a scene from the documentary we're speaking about, The Seeding Steps of Freedom. There's another very interesting idea that comes up in, in the documentary, Ruin Ruin McGann, writer and director of the documentary. It's this idea of the link between Ireland and Africa. Actually, again, not just being in the 20th century or the late 19th century and uh, to do with immigration and the slave trade, but that, in fact, if you look at the map, there's a straight line by sea, obviously, from the west coast of Ireland down to the west coast of Africa. Apparently, the DNA evidence is suggesting even that 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 we have that we have links to that part of the world. Um, but one of the the, the Lenny Sloan, who's an African American dance historian, uh, he 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 very strongly he's looked at this throughout his life, and and he and his I suppose that the core point is that when when African people of African origin and Irish people dance together, they see each other. There's something. There's an echo there that that they're recognizing from who, who knows from where. I mean, they may, maybe the two styles developed independently, um, but it's possible yeah. um, that there was borrowing going on, that there was come, some form of assimilation went on. And there's a lovely scene with with Stephanie Keane dancing with Cuthbert Artura, and uh, and they and they never met before until the morning I put them together, and mm. suddenly they're down in Dingle in a pub, and my God, they they took the place down right because they saw each other. Um, so yeah, the, the the origins of the perhaps Irish indentured servants going to Barbados back in the 1600s after Cromwell, um, and they worked and uh, and lived, I suppose, side by side with African American slaves. The African American slaves had, sorry, the African slaves had much much harder mm. conditions. It's not really comparable, but they were living in proximity um, and working in proximity for a long time. And there's there's a there's it looks as though there was um, the, some sort of transference of, of dance steps and music between them. Um, it, it's quite certain that there was. And, and then that relationship continued uh, throughout um, uh, in America in the 1700s, 1800s, mm. uh, because, again, the Irish immigrants would have been working and living very closely, particularly in places like Five Points, New York. Yeah. And all of this one day, I suppose, ends up with, uh, I mean, tap dance develops out of that yeah. um, confluence and no, that it's connection. A, it's, it's a great story and you tell it brilliantly over the two episodes. Thanks so much for speaking to us this evening, Ruan. That's Ruan McGann. And Steps of Freedom, the story of Irish dance, airs on the 16th of December on RT1 television, 10.15pm. The second part will be on the following week. The Lost Daughter is a novel by Elena Ferrante, author of the Neapolitan Quartet, My Brilliant Friend, which made her a global, if enigmatic, superstar almost 10 years ago and went on to become a HBO series. The Lost Daughter has also been made into a film, about to get into cinemas, and a Netflix release hotly tipped for Oscar nominations. It's directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal and stars, among others, Olivia Colman, Jesse Buckley and Paul Meskel. But before there was a film, there was the novel, and delighted to say that Dr Enrica Ferrara of Trinity College uh, joins me now to tell us more about the book itself. And maybe, Enrica, some characters, certainly whose names will be familiar to those who are familiar with my, my brilliant friend. Maybe tell us a little bit about Lee 
Ida, who is the, the central character here. Yes. Uh, hi, Sean. Um, Leda. Um, Leda is um, a 48-year-old woman, and um, she has uh, two uh, adult daughters. And uh, she is uh, going away on a short holiday on a and uh, on the on the sea uh, shore, and um, so what happens to her is that like she feels light, you know, like feels of lightness because like she's there without the children, as we do when we are going away without our own children. But then uh, what happens is when she goes on the beach, she meets a family of brush, Bulgar, Neapolitan people, um, and this reminds her of her childhood, which she has left behind. And at the same time, she meets um, a woman uh, called. Nina and their daughter Elena or Lenu, and this is what I think will resonate with the readers mm. of the Neapolitan novels. And these two characters have a very strong bond. You know, the mother and the daughter have a very, very strong bond, which is something that uh, this quiet is unnerving for uh, Leda um, and at the same time attracts her a lot. There's a feeling of attraction towards this couple. Um, so so it's then that that um, the mother-daughter relationship, I suppose, I suppose, first of all between Leda and her own daughters, Marta and Bianca, and then the one that she's looking at, this relationship between Nina and her daughter Elena or Lenu, is is the novel essentially about the mother-daughter relationship? Is that what's at the heart of this? Different versions of that relationship. Absolutely. Yes, this is what really is at the centre of the novel. Uh, and it does question conventional notions of motherhood. So the idea of mother is a nature and nurture. This is like what uh, the couple, uh, Nina and Elena, the mother and daughter that later meets on the beach, uh, wants to symbolise. So the commonly shared opinion that the love of children always comes first. Well, instead, Leda symbolises, in a sense, the bad mother, because this is uh, then it is at the heart mm. um, of... Uh, she has a very, very very distinctive way of mothering and we will discover that um, as she uh, as her relationship with Nina and Elena develops because at the centre of this relationship there is also something else which is a doll and the doll uh, uh, is uh, very important in the movie uh, the doll has several meanings uh, it is an object symbolising the confusion between the mother and daughter's identity uh, and in the games that Nina and Elena play on the beach um, the, the, the doll is apparently the mother and and the daughter. So the doll symbolizes the objectification of women, um, and which is reinforced by their reproductive function. So women are always potentially mothers, but at the same time, they're treated like dolls, like objects, yes. like confined in the domestic space. And this is something that Leda rebels against. So and Leda the, yeah, and that. That, that, that idea of the doll, too, it, it, it brings us into a very important aspect of Ferrante's writing, which is if you like, the non-human world. How important is the non-human world? And what, when we're talking about that, we're talking about very specifically what, what, she, um, what she focuses on in that non-human world. Yes, so the non-human. The non-human is very, very important in all the uh, in all uh, Ferrante's books. The, the dolls, as you mentioned in particular, that recur in the Neapolitan novels as well. So what Ferrante wants to try and symbolise in this novel in particular, but in all her work, is that really to modify our knowledge of the world, we need to disassemble its fixed image and believe in a world with porous boundaries in which everything has equal agency. So humans are interconnected with one another, but they're also very much connected with nature, with objects, with uh, plants and animals. 
And by giving and, and uh, actually recognizing that these other mm. aspects and the other objects have a, a sort of agency, we can actually get to know the world in a different way. So uh, what Leda does in the book is actually amazing. What she does is like she steals the doll. So like, she gets the doll away from uh, the mother and the daughter. And in doing that, she kind of unravels herself in her own uh, past. She remembers her relationship with her daughters and uh, how the daughters were playing with their own body, with the body of the mother, like a doll. Yeah, but I... she also, um, there are also these terrible flashbacks of ferocious uh, 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 violence of in Leda her... against the, 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 daughters, the daughters, which is something yes. that I think is going to come strongly, very, very strongly in yeah. the movie. The, the yeah. other thing is, often in, in, in Ferrante, novels that the Neapolitan dialect is very important it's kind of a, a I suppose a rougher brasher dialect maybe than a, the, the kind of formal Italian that, that yeah. will be in the Italian version what how does that work in a translation that we get uh, that we're getting here obviously in The Lost Daughter well, there is no real dialect in the sense that, you know, the, the uh, characters are said to be speaking in dialect, but there is no real dialect. But a dialect is very, very important because of what it symbolizes. And what symbolizes for Anna Ferrante usually is the oppression uh, linked to, uh, a, a, you know, a lack of education, of a patriarchal society that oppresses women into their condition of, um, uh, of you know, like being at home, uh, being continuously pregnant, a life of ignorance that sort of thing. Um, and the, the translation, um, as I said, like, there is no dialect, but at the same time, Anne Golden, Golden does a, a job, fabulous job modulating the different voices in which some of the dialect in a certain way can be perceived, or can, you know, kind of transpire. And Anne Golden does an amazing job in general, rendering the breathtaking, mm. enthralling, accelerating pace of Ferrante's style. She always does that. But in this particular book, there is also a sense of uncanny, an eerie feeling, and a suspension. And this is what, again, yeah. uh, in a sense, with, with a more kind of a dry oh. uh, um, uh, uh, style, this is what Anne Goldstein renders very well. Okay, thanks for being with us this evening, Enrica. That's Dr. Enrica Ferrara telling us about the novel, The Lost Daughter, published by Europa Editions, and the film version of that, directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, will be in selected cinemas from December the 17th, and it will get a Netflix release on December the 31st great Christmas viewing I would have thought that is our lot for this evening Paula Shields and Leah Murphy researched Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator Paddy Carney was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Keshi talk to you tomorrow night once again 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1